Piedmont Women's Center was founded in 1991. Since then, we have continued to educate, equip, and empower the upstate of South Carolina to choose life and change lives. We do so through both medical and support services. All of our medical services are free and include pregnancy tests, ultrasounds, well woman exams, and STD testing and treatment. Our pregnancy tests are always an hour long. We ask them about how they feel about being pregnant. We find out whether or not they're in a safe relationship or a supportive environment. We ask them what resources they need in order to succeed as a parent. But most importantly, we talk to them about Jesus Christ and how he so loved them that he came to die for their sins so that they might live with him forever. We also offer ultrasounds to women who are in one of two categories. First, what we consider abortion-minded. Those are women who have already decided they want to have an abortion, but in order to do so, they need to have a lab pregnancy test and an ultrasound in order to prove that the pregnancy is in the uterus. Second is what we consider to be abortion vulnerable. These are women who may be excited to find out they're pregnant, but in the course of the conversation, they mention that they have not told the father of the baby yet. There are also women who are struggling physically or financially that would fit into this category as well. And we have an 80 to 90% success rate in women choosing life once they have seen their ultrasound. Now on to our support services. We have a variety of resources that we are able to refer to in Greenville, but we also offer several resources in-house. Our most popular by far is our E3 program, which stands for Educate, Equip, and Empower. E3 is our video-based parenting program with over 150 different classes to choose from. The videos cover everything from how to change a diaper to infant nutrition and CPR to how to budget for a new baby. If they take 10 of the classes, we reward them with a graduation gift of a free pack and play, car seat, or a month's supply of diapers. We also have what we call the Bridge Program, which connects new believers to a local church for further discipleship. We also provide a baby shower in a bag to every client after her due date. It is over $250 worth of items with things like diapers, wipes, clothes, pacifiers, bottles, and so much more. We also have an entire department within Piedmont Women's Center dedicated to child loss support. We provide free one-on-one -on -one or group grief counseling to women who have experienced a child loss through miscarriage, infant loss, or a past abortion decision. As you can see, Piedmont Women's Center is determined to be the first choice and the best choice for women faced with an unexpected pregnancy by providing a pathway of hope through Christ. Go to piedmontwomenscenter.org for more information on all of the ways that you can partner with us.
Welcome to morning worship. Praise God for the, another opportunity to exalt him, gathering with his people in his presence, mediated by his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the power of the Spirit. We're so thrilled that you've gathered with us as the body of Christ this morning, especially if you're a first-time guest. We hope and pray that you see the Lord Jesus Christ exalted in all that we do and say, and it's our earnest desire that you would have a personal saving relationship with him. We'd love to talk with you more about that. If you're a guest, there's a connect card in the seat pocket in front of you. There's a QR code there. Or you could fill out the card and leave it at the welcome table in the back. We just love a chance to personally get to know you and know how we can minister to you and uh, serve your needs as a church body. We hope that you feel right at home with us this morning. Um, please, as much as you can, make space. We're going to have a full house this morning, so make space for those who will be visiting with us today and who are going to gather to worship this morning. Well, we want to rejoice and praise God for gifts of his grace. Rio and Ali Oshiro welcomed a baby into their home on Monday, January 22nd, Tama Rioan. So praise God for his gift of grace. Let's pray for them that they'll be able to nurture him in the instruction and in the fear of the Lord. Hear our call to worship from Psalm 95. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let us hear the word of the Lord this morning and respond in our hearts. Please bow with me as we seek God's presence in worship today. Father, we come into your presence this, son, this uh, Sunday through your son, the Lord Jesus, in the power of the Spirit. We pray that you would be pleased with our worship. We pray that you would please work in each heart by the power of your word, that each one of us would recognize we don't live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We pray especially for your blessing on our gathering this morning as we celebrate man made in the image of God, that you made us male and female in your own likeness, and life is precious and has dignity. We pray that you would be honored in all we do and say. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning. There's a, a buzz and an energy when you all are coming in. It's exciting, and I hope you will bring that to your worship this morning. Stand with us and sing. Let's praise and glorify our God. Come praise and glorify our God, the Father of our Lord. In Christ he has in heavenly realms blessings on us for pure and blameless in his sight he destined us to be and now we then adopted through his son eternally to the praise of your glory to the praise of your mercy and grace to the praise of your glory 
be seated. I'm going to ask, instead of the kids this Sunday, a little bit different, we're going to have some families come on stage who have some newborns, some precious life with them. Uh, you can go ahead, come on up onto the stage. Sometimes I guess the kids are a little bit more bold and standing up and running up here. Um, yeah, go ahead, right on stage. And I'll ask Sam to come up as well. Sam will just briefly introduce each other and um, just spend some time rejoicing in what God's doing in our church. Well, thank you, Garrett. I uh, really appreciate you. Pastor, and uh, as our families are coming up, this is a very special Sunday in our church for a number of reasons. Today we are celebrating the sanctity of human life. And uh, when we do that here at Palmetto, we typically also celebrate the new life that God has brought into our congregation. And uh, I think as we uh, celebrate what God has done in the lives of each of these wonderful families, uh, they do not represent all of the new life that God has given to us over this last year. Uh, there were some who were not able to be here uh, today, but uh, I'm so grateful every time that we get the privilege of welcoming a new infant into the family uh, of our church. And uh, so when we come together today, this is a ceremony of celebration. This, is, this, is not, this does not have any religious merit. This does not earn any righteousness before the Lord. This is just a commemoration and a celebration of what God has done in giving such a precious gift to us and to these lovely families up here of new life. And uh, as we do this, we are making not just uh, grateful thanks to the Lord, not just giving grateful thanks to the Lord, we're actually making a commitment as a church that we will come around these families and as they strive to nurture all of their children, including the newest ones, in the, in the Word of God, in the grace of God, as Paul said, in the nurture and admonition that comes from the Lord. We want to be a part of that, and we want to be a church that loves children. Uh, one of my favorite things about coming to Palmetto is uh, watching all the kids roll around here. And I know they sometimes can get underfoot, and sometimes they run a little faster than I can run, and uh, it's kind of fun to watch your parents run after them because they can run faster than most of their parents. And so, but I, I never want us to get tired of that. I never want us to ever feel like our children are sort of in the way. They really are a welcome part of our, our ministry, and that's why every Sunday our student ministries pastor, Garrett, comes up here and does a children's sermon, and the children's sermon is not just for children. It's for us as we partner together with these families. Well, it's my joy to introduce uh, the folks that are here today, and then we have a very special couple that we want to include here at the end, but uh, the, uh, the Inafukus, Micah and Abigail, uh, are standing right over there, and they welcomed Adeline Annette uh, on February 24th. Is that right? And so what a joy that you're here. Pastor Garrett has uh, a children's Bible. That's the book we're giving uh, out this year to each of these couples. And so, Mike and Abigail, we commit to you to be a church that will partner with you as you love and raise Adeline in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And then uh, the Corbers, Isaac and Carly, uh, had a wonderful gift this year. And on August 22nd, they worshiped, or they, were, they welcomed, 
maybe, maybe Isaac does worship, but they, they did welcome Madeline Renee uh, into their family, and what a joy to see the Lord bless you in this way. And then the Schaefers, uh, Darren and Julie, welcomed Elise Nicole on May the 3rd, and uh, Darren and Julie, we are so grateful for you and for the gift that God has given us in you, along with all of our families that are here this morning. And then the Talberts, Eric and Alyssa, uh, welcomed two individuals into their family, uh, Orion Pax on December 22nd, and then Antoine Noah. Uh, I'm sorry, that's a different one. So you just had one. I'm lo- I just added... Oh, there you guys. I just added to you. Uh, so I'm so sorry about that. I looked down here, and I, I just, I need to get new glasses. So, no, we don't want you to have the wrong, wrong son. So Orion is here. And by the way, um, Lisa and Mike Talbert are here, and uh, Lisa is our new mayor in Easley, and we want to welcome her to our services today. So uh, thank you for, for coming. And then uh, the Tenudos, Matt and Lauren, uh, welcoming in two. Is that right? Am I getting this right? Okay, I got the right, got the right thing here. So Antoine Noah was adopted on July 31st, and uh, Tessa Quinn was born on March 25th. And then Dan and Jessica Zakes uh, welcomed Solomon Daniel on September the 12th, uh, and we are so grateful. Now, there is a couple that... Um, the Lord has blessed us with, and we have been on a journey with them as a church, and most of you here know the journey they've been on, and that is Greg and Sarah Shively, and we've asked them to come and join uh, the folks on the platform. Uh, Greg, and Shy- uh, Greg and Sarah <clears throat> found out they were pregnant, and very early on in the pregnancy received news that uh, their little girl, their precious little girl, Uh, would have a very, very wonderful pregnancy, but would only live for a few hours after birth. And uh, Greg and Sarah made a very difficult choice, a biblical choice, to give that little girl the best life she could have, and they did. And little Madeline Grace was born on August 12th, and she lived for just under an hour, and her mom and dad got to meet her. We got to be a part of that as a church, and we thought it would be very, very appropriate to thank the Lord for the ongoing impact that little Madeline or Madison Grace has had in our lives as a church. She continues to impact people through her story, and, uh, and little Madison's story is a powerful story, and it is reaching into communities far beyond what we know. And so she is a little missionary and continues to be that way. Uh, and and just a wonderful blessing to our church. And we want to honor her today. We want to celebrate her life because we know where she is. She's in the presence of the Lord. So I'm going to ask Pastor Garrett if he would read a scripture uh, celebrating all of this life that the Lord has given. And then as our student ministries pastor, he is going to pray a prayer of uh, commendation to the grace of God and commitment on our part as a church. All right, I'm just going to read a portion of Psalm 78. I'm going to face you, but it's, it's almost a congregational prayer that this would be what God's doing in our lives from generation to generation. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might 
and the wonders that he's done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded to our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn. And arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but to keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. And we trust that maybe something different's going on from this generation to the next, but that there can be fathers that we can model and mentors and parents and other peers of all ages that we can look to each other and look up to. And when we talk about the big three means of grace, God's word, fellowship, prayer, something, something that we don't often talk about is the means of those means. And one of the biggest ones is families and the church, that to each other we would minister God's grace through his word, through prayer, through fellowship, uh, and how we point each other to God. And so I pray that as a church, as parents, as peers, that we would all uh, be a part of God's wonders, all the works that he's done being passed from generation to generation. So we're not just going to the corners of the earth, but also generation after generation. And so let's pray together and ask for God's blessing. Father, thank you that you are an amazing God, a God that we can try to describe but always come short of how amazing you are. I pray that you would give uh, this church, these parents, wisdom and grace to as closely as we can uh, make much of you and that your gospel would shine forth in our lives uh, the way that we relate to each other. We look to how you relate to the Son in the Trinity, and we see the special love that you have for your Son, and, and somehow you share in that special love for us as adopted sons and daughters. All the ways that you've exemplified perfection, holiness, glory, I pray that you would give us glimpses into seeing who you are and that that glory would work its way out through this church community and to the children so that generation after generation, we would be in awe of you and spread that glory across the world. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. You can be dismissed. And kids, I will meet you upstairs. You're dismissed as well. <laughs> what a good deacon you are. All right, if you'll, if you'll join me by standing for our final song before the message this morning. This is our song of the month. If you've been, if this is not your first Sunday, then you should be familiar with this by now, at least more so than the beginning of the month. So let's raise our voices.
thank you worship team for leading us so well this morning. I hope your hearts were really blessed by what we sang and celebrated uh, in the gospel realities that we, uh, we sung about this morning. And uh, the, the song that we're learning this month, Jesus Over Everything, really is an appropriate hymn for us to sing this morning as we think about what we've just observed and the beauty of it and as we've celebra uh, celebrated the new life that God has brought to our assembly. We had a lot of grandparents here today, and I should have mentioned that when we had these families up and uh, were introducing them, but many of them had uh, grandparents. The Chettas were here, and the Corvers obviously are part of our church, and so are the Bensons, and, uh, and then the Talberts were here, and the Fosters were here. So if I happen to miss one of you, I'm so sorry, but we want to welcome you today, and we're so grateful that we could be a part of the life of your grandson or granddaughter, and we, we celebrate that life with you. Well, before, I'm going to ask you to open your Bible to the 22nd Psalm. Before we go there, I need to clean up something that I inadvertently did last week, and I've heard from many of you. So I, I feel like I probably uh, need to, to say something about this. But do you remember when we were talking about the marriage weekend that's coming up? 
and uh, we are, we're going to have this wonderful time where couples are going to come together on the 8th and 9th of uh, March. And I made the brilliant comparison uh, as to why men should think about going to this and getting their family uh, oriented to this and their wives to come to this. And I made the brilliant comment that it would be like buying a very nice car. How many of you remember this little comment I made? Yeah. Um, and, and then not, not, you know, not changing the oil in the car, not, not taking care of the car. And, and, and so I, I meant to say your marriage is the car. But some of you thought I was thinking about your wife as the car. So I heard about this when I got home. I heard about this on the way home. <laughs> I heard about this throughout the week. <clears throat> and uh, so I just want to make sure all of you ladies, please understand, I am not comparing you to a car <laughs> at all. Um, because uh, if, if I were and your husband were the mechanic, we're in a lot of trouble here today. So let me just encourage you to think about that illustration. Marriage is the vehicle, and we want to make sure we take care of it. And I actually need this re retreat after that comment, so I'm the first one to sign up. But I hope many, many of you will join me. We have uh, Dr. David Burgraff and his wonderful wife, Lucy. They're coming, and they will just be a tremendous blessing. And so please put that on your calendar. Hold the date for that, and, uh, and, and we'll have a good time together as we celebrate the wonderful thing that God has given us in marriage. Well, this Sunday is the Sunday that Palmetto Baptist Church is set aside to observe and to celebrate the sanctity of human life. And I think it's a fair question as we come to a Sunday like this uh, every year, why is it that the elders at Palmetto believe that it is important for our church to set aside a Sunday like this every year and commemorate and prayerfully uh, devote it to our understanding, our celebration of the sanctity of human life. And, and more importantly, not just doing it because it's become customary in evangelical churches like ours, but that we observe the sanctity of human life through the lens of the gospel. And there are three reasons that the elders and I would like to put before you as to why this is an important Sunday to commemorate each year. I, I think one of the reasons, the first one I'd like to set before you this morning, is that we need to remind ourselves that God values the life of every human and holds that life sacred. Psalm 8 tells us that He created every person in His own image, that He destined and moved human beings for glory and honor. He appointed them to display His glory and represent that honor throughout the earth, and He has redeemed them by means of an immense price of, of incalculable worth. And so when you just look at a place like Psalm 8 and you look at it through the lens of the gospel, clearly the life of every individual person is of immense value to God, and therefore it should matter immensely to us and especially to us as His people. So that's the first reason why the elders and I believe that it is important to set aside a Sunday like this to commemorate and celebrate and observe the sanctity of human life. The second reason is a stunning reason, and it is the need that we have to review periodically and remind ourselves of the indisputable, shocking evidence 
that the world around us and the culture in which we live does not value human life, nor does it hold that life sacred. You see, that is a very strong statement to make. Well, this is particularly evident in the immense devaluation and the intentional destruction of the life of unborn infants that goes on every day around us. And as we kind of think about this, I I think we need to see what that actually looks like. Because when somebody like me stands up and talks about this in a congregation like this, and we don't do this very often, and you know that we typically make our way through a book of the Bible or through a a series on some theological uh, concept that is important to our lives as believers, We, we rarely take a Sunday like this but we do this once a year, and it's not just important to remind ourselves that God values human life. It's also important to observe the fact that we live in a world that doesn't. And so let me give you some statistics. Since 1973, Roe versus Wade was was made law in uh, 1973. Since 1973, in the 50-plus years, more than 65 million legal abortions have taken place in the United States. If you track abortion statistics in this country alone, there is approximately, if you average everything out, about a million abortions a year, a little bit under a million this year. And uh, that rate has gone up and down. But, but if you sort of average it out, it's about a million abortions a year. The overwhelming vast majority of those abortions were not done for medical crises or to save the life of the mother. The life that was aborted was a normal, healthy, developing infant in the mother's womb. Every year, there are institutions that uh, track statistics like this. The, uh, the World Health Organization and the Guttmacher Institute uh, track statistics, and their latest statistics is, is that an average of 73 million children are aborted every year in the countries where these organizations keep statistics. They actually argue that the number is much higher than that, but these are the numbers that were counted, 73 million infants aborted each year. And then if you sort of do the math since 1973, if you just took 50 years, it's a little more than 50 years, but if you took 50 years, there are between 3 and 3.5 billion infants that have been aborted. This year, the population of the earth is about 8.1 billion people. I mean, if you stop and think about it, that's more than a fourth of the earth's population that has been aborted and had their life terminated intentionally. And that's why I can stand up here and say, as, as difficult as it is to hear and as shocking as it might be to our ear, that we live in a world and we are surrounded by a culture that does not value human life the way the Scriptures present it. Whatever your political view is, or even your own personal assessment of the pro-choice movement, and by the way, I I want you to know that our our church is distinctively pro-life. We're unashamedly pro-life as a body. But if you're here and you have your own views about uh, the topic we're talking about and the pro-choice movement, whatever you hold, it cannot be denied 
that the stunning number of human lives that have been intentionally terminated through abortion is shocking. It's shocking. These statistics are staggering and they are deeply disturbing. And as Christians, we have to come to grips with them. And we have to come to grips with much more than just how we might feel about the immensity of a loss of this nature. We must come to grips with what God says he feels and what he wants done about this as we respond submissively and appropriately and align our values and our feelings to his word. And so that's the second reason. And then the third reason the elders and I feel is important for us to look at this topic and to celebrate the sanctity of human life as a church is that we must seek to understand and embrace how the gospel should shape our response to both of these stunning realities. God is creator of all life and savior of the world and redeemer of those who have repented cares about human life. We can put it differently. The gospel informs our understanding and it shapes our response both to the immense value God puts on human life and to the stunning destruction of that life that takes place every day around us. This is why we need a Sanctity of Life Sunday. We need a Sanctity of Life Sunday to help us reflect deeply and receive obediently and respond personally to what God has said in His Word about the sanctity of all human life, especially and including the life of every unborn infant who is in the womb. As you came in this morning, you noticed there was a video playing. We're going to play that same little clip at the end of our benediction today, and it is the efforts of an organization in our own time, in our own town to make a difference, a small difference, but a massive difference in the life of unborn infants that are rescued from abortion, and we'll say more about that at the end of our time together. And so here's the question, I think, as we look at what the elders and I are setting before us as a congregation on Sanctity of Life Sunday, how do we talk about this issue as committed Christians? Where do we go for definitive answers to shape our belief and our behavior about the sanctity of life? And are we willing to let those answers shape our thinking and govern our practice? And I'm going to speak to all of us. It doesn't matter what generation you're a part of. There are four generations that worship here every week. Uh, It doesn't matter what gender you are. It doesn't matter if you're married or you're single. This topic touches every one of our lives. And I think it's very important that we come to the Scriptures and we let the Scriptures shape our belief and form up our behavior as we think about this topic. And so to do that, I want to ask and answer five questions. We're going to move fairly quickly through our, our topic this morning. Um, and the, the sort of the line will be very tightly woven together and connected. I don't normally stress this, but you'll notice at the beginning of our, our time together when we come to the Word, there's a QR code that is always up on the screen. And you can download or access the notes to the message on our app. And so please do that if you haven't after our service and, and keep this somewhere because I want, I, I'm just telling us as a church, this material is going to be a material that I think you're going to use 
At some point in your life, you're going to have a friend. You're going to have somebody at your work. You're going to have a family member. You're going to have the friend of a family member, and they're going to have questions about this. And I want the scriptures to inform our thinking and our behaving about this topic. So, question number one. With regard to my own life, does God give me the ultimate right to choose to do whatever I want to do with my body? Do I have the ultimate right to choose what to do with my body? I mean, this is at the heart of a movement that stands behind and has given rise to much of what we have been talking about this morning. When we talk about pro-choice, we are talking about a movement that is based on the idea that individual people have the right and have the authority to do whatever they want to do and deem appropriate with their body. And so we need to look at that question and we need to ask ourselves how that question lines up with Scripture. Do we have the right to choose to do whatever we choose to do with our body? Maybe a different way of putting that would be this. Who ultimately governs me and my body, and and to what extent does this authority apply? Let me put it really plainly. Does this authority extend to the life of an infant that has come to be in an unwanted or unexpected pregnancy? Do I have the authority to do whatever I want to do with my body when I encounter an unexpected or unwanted pregnancy? And let me give you three three scriptures that should shape our answer to that question. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, let me read that to you. Do you not know? And Paul is saying it in a way that he's actually saying, you do know. Let me call it to your attention. Let me remind you. You do know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And since you are not your own, and since you were bought with a price, glorify God in your body. In other words, your body does not belong to you. It belongs to God. He created it, he redeemed it, and because he owns it and he's redeemed it and he's in the process of sanctifying it, you have an obligation to to use your body in whatever state it is in, in ways that glorify God. So we are not our own. We are bought with a price and we must use our body for his purpose and for his pleasure and for his glory and not our own. So that's text number one. Here's text number two. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We have been given freedoms and rights by God and through His mercy to use our bodies in a certain way. To use our bodies to pursue paths in life for which God has equipped and designed us and that pleasure and honor Him. Listen to how Paul put it. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercy of God to present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then here's 
the third set of texts, they are found in the book of Genesis, and they teach us that because we were created in the image of, of God, human life is sacred to him, and it must be held sacred to us. We were created in God's image, Genesis chapter 2, verse 27 says. And because of that, Genesis 9, verses 5 through 6, tells us that God holds human life sacred above every other kind of life. And here's what he said in Genesis chapter 9. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. What's all that mean? What's all this reckoning from a beast and from a fellow man? And really what Moses is pointing out in the account of God's words to Adam is this, that when it comes to human life, whoever takes a human life will be held accountable. If an animal takes a human life, that animal will be held accountable. If a human takes human life, that human will be held accountable. And here's the text, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And here's the reason, for God made man in his own image. You are more valuable to God than animals and inanimate life. So much so that if an animal takes human life, that, human, that animal's life will be forfeit. And if a human takes human life intentionally, God says, I will hold that life accountable. And so with regard to my own life, does God give me the ultimate right to choose what to do with my body? The answer to that is what? No. Here's the second question. What about the life of another? When it comes to the life of another, does God give me the individual right to bring intentional harm or to do something that intentionally harms the life or the well-being of another person? And there are three texts that I want to call to your attention here. One of them is a set of texts in the Old Testament, and it's repeated multiple times in the New Testament. For example, in Matthew 19, there is a direct command of God about this. When it comes to the life of another human being, what does God tell me? And God says, do not kill. Do not kill. In fact, in Genesis 9-6, the text we just read together, when somebody intentionally sheds the blood of another man, God will hold that man accountable, and he has given a statement to human government that if that is done intentionally, then the life of the person who did the shedding should be required. I mean, that is a very strong statement of how God values human life. And then if you come to the New Testament, Paul writing to the Thessalonians said this way, always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So the New Testament ethic built off of the Old Testament commands and prohibitions would all lead to the conclusion that as a believer and really even as a member of the world in which God created, we do not have the individual right to intentionally bring harm to the life or to the well-being of another person. So if you've been following along, there are two important conclusions that the texts of Scripture have led us to. Number one, I don't have the right to do whatever I want to do with my body. However inconvenient it might be, however unexpected it might be, God has not given me the right 
the ultimate right over my own body. And secondly, God has not given me the right to bring harm intentionally to somebody else's body. Which brings us to the most important question this morning, and that's why it's in the middle. And that is this. If God tells me that I can't intentionally bring harm to another person's life, here's the question. When does a person become a person? When does a person become a person? And that's an important question because if what is growing in a mother's womb is a person, then I am under obligation to God not to do harm intentionally to that person. I think all of us, regardless of our personal view, would agree that abortion in any form is the intentional termination of a pregnancy. I think we would all agree that that's really the definition of abortion. What we really need to know is whether or not we are terminating a person when we end that pregnancy. And we ultimately need more than human opinion on this. We need to know the answer from somebody who has the authority, the moral authority to speak to that. And here's, here's why. Our consciences will demand that of us. Our consciences are the ones that are going to ask us that question. Did you have the right to terminate what was growing in your womb? Did you have the right to pressure that person as, as part of the equation to have an abortion? Did you have the right to terminate what was growing in that womb? And the answer is going to rest on whether or not what was growing there is a person. And your conscience isn't going to accept your answer and your own human reasoning. Your conscience is going to demand an answer from somebody who has the moral authority to give that answer, or your conscience will never rest. And you will spend decades of your life wrestling with the voice of your conscience on this question, did you terminate a person? And so we need to get an answer to that question. So let's look at some texts. And I want you to write these down because I think they are stunning. Psalm 139 teaches us that what is growing in the womb is created by God. David says it this way, you formed my inward part. You knit me together in my mother's womb. So whatever is going on in that womb, in the life of what is growing there, God says, I am the one forming it. I am the one overseeing how that is all happening. And in Psalm 22, the psalm I ask you to turn to this morning, that's sort of been sitting out in your lap or on your device, we read a text that tells us that God intimately knows and personally relates to what he is developing and forming and shaping in that womb. Listen to David look back on his own time in his mother's womb. He said this, you are the one who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and here's the line, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. There is an intimate relational component between God and what is developing in the womb. Jeremiah chapter 1 talks about this. It's not just that God creates what is growing in the womb. 
and he has intimate knowledge and relates to what is growing into that uh, in, in the womb relationally. At times, he calls and appoints what is growing in the womb to certain tasks. As his servants, he said this to Jeremiah, or Jeremiah gave this own testimony, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you, and I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And the text consistently takes you back to a time before birth. God created, God intimately knows and overshadows, and at times God calls and appoints people that are still in the womb. In Psalm 51, David comes back to the table and he says, now I want you to know something. I had moral standing when I was in the womb. There, there was a moral condition to me in the womb, even though I had never acted or ever done a particular transgression, there was moral standing assigned to me because of my relationship to Adam after the fall. In Psalm 51, verse 5, David says, Behold, in other words, pay attention to this. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And he's not talking about the fact that the act of conception between his mother and his dad was sinful. That's not what he's saying that I was conceived as a result of a sinful act. That's not what the verse is teaching. The verse is actually saying, from the moment of my conception, there was a sin nature that was bound up in me that I needed to be redeemed from. There was a sin nature that is as much a part of my moral DNA as any physical attribute is part of my physical DNA. And it happened while I was in the womb. And then Luke chapter 1, verses 40 through 44, records a stunning occasion where two women who are expecting come together. Mary comes in the door to see her cousin Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist. And as soon as Mary comes in the door and starts speaking, the baby in Elizabeth's uh, womb, John the Baptist, leaped for joy. In other words, this infant felt emotion, and responded with joy while yet in the womb. Listen to how the text says, when Mary entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And then verse 44, behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ear, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Created by God, Psalm 139, intimately known and in, in, a, in a relational knowledge with God, Psalm 22, called and appointed at times by God to ministry, Jeremiah 1.5, moral standing before God. In David's case, Psalm 51 and able to feel emotion and respond to God in joy in Luke chapter 1. And all of this while in the womb. So let me ask you a question. Are you looking at the description of a person? People are created by God. People are known intimately by God. People are called and appointed to ministry by God. 
People are a sign, moral standing in the sight of God. People feel emotion and respond to God. So when you look at the compendium of these texts and you put them all together and you read these texts talking about what is happening in somebody's womb, the inescapable conclusion is that what is in that womb is not a fetus, it is a person. And that was the question we needed an answer to. When does a person become a person? A person does not become a person when they're born and take their first breath. A person becomes a person the moment they are conceived. And these texts make that case. These texts reveal the inescapable and undeniable reality that a person becomes a person in the womb. Which brings me to my fourth question this morning. Can I do whatever I want to do? Do I have the authority to make choices about my body? Do I have the ultimate authority to do that? Answer, no. The Scriptures do not give us that ultimate authority. Do I have the authority to do intentional harm or to do something that brings intentional harm to the life of another person? Answer, the Scripture clearly prohibits that. Question number three, when does a person become a person? We've looked at a series of texts carefully, thoughtfully, intentionally that lead us to the inescapable conclusion that from God's perspective, and by the way, he is the only perspective that matters in this, a person becomes a person, not at birth, not when they take their first breath, a person becomes a person at conception. In other words, what is growing in a mother's womb is not just a fetus, although we, we refer to that, and I understand their context where, where you'll hear that term, but don't ever forget that it's not just a fetus, it is a person that is growing in the womb. And so here's the, here's the fourth question. With regard to government, with regard to human government, what God-assigned responsibility does human government have to protect the life and well-being of its citizens? Now, please don't get distracted by, you know, the government is supposed to run our lives. That's not what we're talking about here. We're asking what God-assigned responsibility this human government, no matter where it exists, no matter what form it is in, no, no matter what country or what time it exists, does human government have God-assigned responsibility to protect and preserve the life and well-being of its citizens? But listen to this. We looked at Genesis 9-6. And we uh, have a text in Romans 13 that basically says that it is the responsibility of human government, a God-assigned responsibility to preserve and protect human life by demanding the life of someone who intentionally, wrongfully terminates the life of another human being. I mean, that is a clear God-assigned responsibility to human government. It ought to shock us. It ought to make us uncomfortable. It ought to disquiet our soul whenever we hear about this or read about this. And, and certainly it is applied in certain countries in horrifically bad ways. But we're asking a different question. Is there a God-assigned responsibility to human government to protect and preserve human life? And the answer is yes. And we can see that in Genesis 9, verse 6, and in Romans chapter 13, Verses 1 through 5. In Exodus chapter 23, verse 7, God assigns to government 
the responsibility to protect the life of the innocent and especially of the righteous. Listen to Exodus 23, verse 7. Keep far, this is now given to the governing authorities of Israel, keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. Well, does that extend to somebody who hasn't been born? And in Exodus 21, verses 22 through 25, we have a very unusual text that has been given to the government of Israel about the life of an unborn infant. Let me read it to you. When men strive together, in other words, when men get in an argument and maybe have an altercation and and they hit a pregnant woman in the process, this is not an intentional hit, when they hit a woman so that her children come out. Here are two men in an altercation. In the middle of that altercation, they, they, they hit a woman who is pregnant in such a way that her children are born, but there is no harm. The one who hit her will surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he will pay as the judge determines. But, verse 23, If there is harm, in other words, if that life is lost, then you will pay life for life. So let me ask you again. Does government have a God-assigned responsibility, regardless of what the government is or where it is located or what country or what system? It might be a monarchy. It might be a democracy. Whatever, the, whatever it is, does human government have a God-assigned responsibility to protect and preserve the life and well-being of its citizens? And the answer to that is what? From these texts, yes. Which then leads to this important consideration for those of us who live in this country. We, by the providence of God and the common grace of God, have been given a wonderful right to participate in the appointment of those who govern over us. As we speak to this by means of our vote, we have a responsibility and a duty to consider and evaluate the implications of that vote on the sanctity and the protection of human life. I want you to hear that. As a believer in a country that God has allowed you to live in, which we all ought to be so grateful for, for the freedoms we have that were hard won, the fact that we we actually have the privilege as Americans to speak into who governs us by our vote, we don't just cast that vote on economic platforms, what's going to be best economically for the country. Or maybe there's a particular social agenda that we hold or a political agenda that we're all about or a party that we strongly prefer. There is something that's even more important than that, and that is the sanctity of human life. And however you vote, your vote has to consider the implications of what it means for the sanctity of human life when God has assigned a government the responsibility to protect and preserve the life and the well-being of its citizens. Now, you know we hardly ever talk this way as a church. We don't speak very often of politics here. This is not politics. Abortion does not belong to a political party. Abortion is a right 
It, it is an issue, rather. Abortion, the right of the unborn, is an issue that belongs to God. And as His children, we have a responsibility to use our voice and sometimes our vote to speak to that issue. Now, that brings me to the last thing as we consider this important question. Question number one, do I have the right, the ultimate right to do whatever I choose to do with my body? Answer, no. Do I have the right to bring intentional harm to the life of another? And all of us, as we looked at those texts, all of us came to the conclusion, well, of course not. Old Testament command and prohibition, New Testament ethic, of course we don't have that right. The real question we looked at was, is what is growing in the womb a person? When does a person become a person? And we let David speak to that. We let Jeremiah speak to that. We let the Scripture speak to that. We discovered that a person becomes a person at conception. And then we asked the question, what obligation, what God-assigned responsibility does human government, wherever it is located, have with regard to the protection of the life and the well-being of its citizens. And we saw that, that God does give that obligation and responsibility to human government. And that brings me to this. With regard to the gospel and to the church, what does God want us to do as his people when the sanctity of human life has been violated by others? How does the gospel address all of this brokenness that goes on around us and sometimes in us? And so let me, let me make just some comments about this that, that I want us to think about. Millions of unborn people have been and are being aborted in our land. This should bother us. This should disturb us. We, we should grieve over this profoundly. We, we should really think about this biblically. We should voice our objection to this thoughtfully, intentionally, graciously, but boldly. Millions of unborn people in our own country and around the world are, are intentionally suffering the loss of their life in the womb, and this should disturb us deeply. The life and the soul of the parents of aborted infants have been spiritually damaged and deeply affected. I think sometimes we focus on the loss of the infant and we forget the immense damage that happened to the soul of the person, the mom and the dad, who went about and acted out this abortion. And this should move us profoundly. How do we help these people? What do we do when we encounter somebody whose soul has been deeply damaged by this and their conscience just speaks to them and their life has been forever changed by this? Well, I think we should pray about this constantly in our own lives and in the lives of those people in our life that God brings that have been damaged in this way. We should guard against this personally, and, and young people, can I just speak to you as, as high school students and as college students? There is a reason that God has put the moral statements that he has put in Scripture about your sexuality. I mean, there really is. And one of those reasons, maybe not the primary reason, but certainly one of those reasons is that God would spare you from this. 
There is an immense thing that happens when a young person or anybody finds themselves unexpectedly with an unwanted pregnancy. And at that moment, you would be shocked what will go through your mind. You will entertain things you never thought you would entertain if you have not guarded against this in your life personally. And then we should seek to minister to those whose lives have been affected by abortion or who are considering abortion, and we should do this compassionately. This is why I mentioned to you at the beginning of our service and at the end of our service, I wanted you to see a brief clip on the Piedmont Women's Center. The chairman of the board and a board member of that organization are in our church. Our church ought to be thankful to the Lord for that organization and for what it is doing and for the lives that are being impacted. And it's not just the life of the infant that is being spared, as, as wonderful as that is, and as much as we ought to celebrate that, they are also ministering to the lives of the moms and dads of those infants. And I bet if you were inclined, they would welcome your help. There are financial needs that go with that. And, and some of us in this room ought to be supporting what they do. There are volunteer needs that happen in that ministry that we ought to get behind as a church. You say, Pastor, what can we do? How can we show compassion? How can we involve ourselves appropriately and thoughtfully and intentionally and sacrificially? Well, here is one little place in our town that is easily accessible to us that we can actually be a part of. And two of our church members are deeply involved in this battle for the life of the unborn, and not just for the life of the unborn, but for the life of the parent. It's not just the life of the unborn. It's the life of the mom and the dad. And we can have tremendous influence and impact as a church. And so this week in our e-news, we're going to actually send you a much longer link. These two links are this video that we're showing you at the front and the back end, there is a much larger explanation of what is going on at the Piedmont Wind Seminar, and it is going to go out this week in our e-news, and I would really encourage all of you to take the time to look at that. Here's the third thing. The gospel brings grace and hope to all of this, and this should encourage and motivate us personally. We should recognize the cross of Jesus can forgive and redeem all of this in the life of a person. And I want to just stop here for a minute. And I don't want to assume something, and I don't want any of us to assume something. But can I just say this? If you're in this room and you have had an abortion or you have been the dad who encouraged the mom to have an abortion, you might be sitting here in your heart and saying, what do I do now? What do I do now? And a sermon like this that is intended to bring hope and life and courage to a congregation so that we care both about the life of the infant and the life of the parent may actually feel to you like a boatload of guilt. And, it, and while everybody else is getting encouraged and, and, and strengthened, you may, actually, you may actually feel like you're getting crushed. So what do you do? If you've had this happen in your life, you found yourself in an unwanted pregnancy, 
He never saw it coming. It happened. And again, we're sort of boundering out. We realize there's complexities when there are medical issues and the life of the mother is at stake, and those are very complicated things, and our elders are happy to talk to you about those situations. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about normal pregnancy where you have a healthy infant, and it's unexpected, and it's unwanted, and it intruded into your life, and now you are faced with the consequences of what do I do? I've got to make a decision. And you made the wrong call. Let's just say 20 years ago or 25 years ago or 15 years ago, this happened. And here you sit, and you say to yourself, what do I do? And the answer is, you run to the gospel that saved you. You rest in the grace that redeemed you. You remember the Apostle Paul? There are scripture texts in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and Acts chapter 9, verse 1, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, where Paul was consenting to the death of a believer. There are texts that talk about not just consenting to the death of believers, but actually on his way to bring about the death of believers. And that's why he could say in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, I am the chief of sinners. I brought havoc in the church of God. In 1 Timothy 1, 15, I am the chief of sinners. Was there forgiveness for Paul through the gospel? Did the grace of the gospel cover that? And the answer is what? Yes. And the same gospel that saved Paul and the same grace that rescued Paul from all of that guilt and all of that pain and put him forth as a preacher of the gospel he once persecuted is the same grace and it's the same gospel that's available to you. And so if you're here this morning and you found yourself in that spot, can I just say to you that the gospel covered it, the grace of God covered it. That's why the song we sang just before the message is so powerful. Run to Jesus. Hang on to Jesus. Believe Jesus when he said, I forgive you. Rely on the grace of Jesus and rejoice in the hope of the gospel that is yours. And when you meet that infant in heaven, you might be surprised what that infant has to say to you when you've repented and you've used your life for the gospel, you might have that infant come up and say to you, I am so proud you were my mom. I am so proud you were my dad. I've been watching up here how the grace of God redeemed all of this, and I see the work that has gone forth for the kingdom of God and the glory of God, and I am proud that you're my mom. I am proud that you're my dad. Satan would never want you to think that way. But there's someone in heaven who's defeated Satan through the gospel, and the gospel is a powerful power transforming reality in your life. And here's the thing. If you are ever in a place, and young people, if you're ever here, here's the last thing I want to say. As a church, we need to create a culture of life and a culture of grace that comes around the gospel. Young people, I hope, whether you're a college student or high school, I hope you never find yourself in a place where you've crossed a moral boundary, and that happens from time to time. I'm not excusing it. I'm not minimizing it. Please don't, don't hear that Palmetto is permissive morally. That's not, that's not what we are. But most of us who sin never intended to sin. We were caught up in a transgression, and you may be caught up in a transgression that results in 
an unexpected, unwanted pregnancy, and you may be afraid to tell anybody. And I want you to know something about our church. We are going to come around you. We are going to help you. We are going to surround you with love. We are going to work through this with you. We don't want you to compound one transgression with another of vastly more immense consequences. We're going to come around you. We're going to come around your parents. We, we are not going to shame you. We are not going to put you in a place where others are going to shame you. We, if you are repentant before the Lord, we are going to come and we are going to create a culture of grace and a culture of life around you so that you can thrive and so that the infant, however tragic its inception was, that infant will have the ability to hear the gospel, experience the gospel, and come to know the grace of God that, that is at work in your life. We want to be that kind of a church. Young man, if you find yourself the father of an unexpected pregnancy and you don't know what to do, encourage. You're in a church that will come alongside you and we will help you encourage your partner to choose life. We want life for you. Jesus came to give us life and not just any kind of life, but abundant life. And we want to be a, a church where life thrives. And so that's why I've called our Sanctity of Sunday, a Sanctity of Life Sunday, a Sunday where we choose life. Let me end with this final thought. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been hearing all this and it's interesting to you. Maybe it's jarring to you. Maybe it's not offensive to you, but it's like I haven't really thought about this before. I understand that this is not a topic that we typically think a lot about. It's a hot button in politics. It's a hot button in our culture. But typically, believers have not thought deeply about this. So this may be more than you've ever heard on this topic. And you say, you know what, Pastor Sam, I need to think more about this. Come and talk to one of our elders. We are eager to talk to you about this. But it would be tragic on a Sunday that we celebrate life and we're urging people to choose life. If you're here and you don't have eternal life and you walk away hearing all this beautiful ministry about life and you don't receive an invitation from us to choose the life that matters. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior, if you haven't personally come to Him with your sin and said to Him, Lord, I repent of my sin, I'm, I'm leaving all of my own human efforts beside, behind, and I am coming as a sinner, repentant of my sin, asking you for life, for forgiveness. If you haven't done that, can I just say to you as I pray here in just a moment, this is a great Sunday to do that. It's a great Sunday to do that. Just bow your head while we're praying and talk to God in your heart and say, God, I don't know about all this that I heard today. This is news to me. This is all new to me. But I do know this, that I need a relationship with a God like you. If you care this much about life, if you care this much about human life, you must care about my life. And I, I want life. And so, God, I'm asking you to forgive my sin. I'm asking you to save me from my sin. And I'm just coming to you asking you for life. It's that simple. If you call on the name of the Lord, 
Paul said, God will hear and he will deliver. He will save. So let's do that together, shall we? Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that as we come together on a Sunday where we celebrate life and we think about the celebration of life and we talk about choosing life on a human level, that you chose death so that you could give us life. You sent your son to live a perfect life, an obedient life, a beautiful life in every respect with the full knowledge that that life would end in a violent way so that we who were sinners could be forgiven. And so, Lord, thank you for making life possible. Thank you for not just giving us our physical life, but making possible eternal life. And we do come to you. And we thank you for it. And Lord, if there are some of us here this morning who still need it, would you grant it to us? We come asking that you would forgive us. We repent of our sin. We acknowledge our inability to earn it. And so we come desperately seeking it and asking for it. And we know that when we call out to you with a repentant heart, a humble heart, a desperate heart, that you hear us. And you answer us with life. And so we want to choose that life redemptively. And then we want to be a church that enables people to choose life physically and to live that life by 